This past week at Vacation Bible School, the theme was God's big, beautiful world. And we told Bible stories about growth and that which enables it, stories about dirt and seeds and water. The water story came from the Hebrew scriptures when Moses was in the wilderness and the people were complaining about being thirsty. So Moses, what does he do, friends? Strikes a rock, good job, and water gushes forth. I was really impressed with the children at Vacation Bible School. I was impressed by their memory of the larger arc of that story. So in case you're not as up to date as the kids, here's your 60-second Old Testament plot review. Way back in the beginning, God says to Abram, his name was Abram then, go to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. And through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And after quite a long while, Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah. Then Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, have twins. And baby B, Jacob, steals his birthright from Esau. Jacob then has 12, 12 sons, Joseph, being his daddy's favorite, who is stripped of his special technicolor coat and sold into slavery in Egypt. Joseph befriends the pharaoh, and it goes well for a while. But one day there's a pharaoh in Egypt who doesn't remember Joseph. And so once again, the Hebrew people are oppressed. And that promise that God made to Abram, the promise of land and blessing, it feels like a long way off. Pharaoh even commanded the death of all Hebrew baby boys. But thanks to some rebellious midwives, a little guy named Moses was born, and he's pulled out of the bulrushes, you remember, to grow up and hear God calling to him through a burning bush. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Moses leads the people through the Red Sea into the wilderness where they wander and complain and eat manna. And after a whole golden calf incident, they get a do-over on receiving God's law, which they start carrying around in a special mobile home situation. (laughs) Moses climbs Mount Pisgah and gazes at the land that is just across the Jordan River And God reiterates the promise. This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob when I said I will give it to your descendants. Moses dies just short of the finish line. And so it is Joshua who leads the people across the Jordan into the land of Canaan. And the first place they reach is Jericho. So, let us now listen for God's word for us from Joshua chapter 6. But first, let us pray. Here we are, O God, with this old story. Somehow, in some way, may we hear in it echoes of your everlasting promise of blessing 
and your call for us to be a blessing to all the nations of your big, beautiful world. Amen. Now Jericho was shut up inside and out because of the Israelites. No one came out and no one went in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have handed Jericho over to you along with its kings and soldiers. You shall march around the city, all the warriors circling the city once. Thus you shall do for six days with seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, the priests blowing the trumpets. When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and all the people shall charge straight ahead. So Joshua, son of Nun, summoned the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and have seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns in front of the Ark of the Lord. To the people he said, Go forward and march around the city. Have the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. As Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. And the armed men went before the priest who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the Ark, while the trumpets blew continually. To the people Joshua gave this command, You shall not shout or let your voice be heard, nor shall you utter a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So the ark of the Lord went around the city, circling it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord passed on, blowing the trumpets continually. The armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. On the second day, they marched around the city once and then returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at dawn and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout! For the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers we sent. As for you, keep away from the things devoted to destruction, so as not to covet and take any of the devoted things and make, and make the camp of Israel an object for destruction bringing trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the, shout, the sound of the trumpets, they raised a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people charged straight ahead 
into the city and captured it. Then they devoted to destruction by edge of the sword all in the city, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys. This is the word of the Lord. In ancient Near Eastern warfare, you had three options for taking a walled city, such as Jericho. You could take the city by ruse. Think of the Trojan horse tactic, right? You could sneak in or somehow get invited in and then surprise attack. You could wait it out, cut supply lines, wait for everybody in the city to get hungry so they give up and surrender. Three, you could breach the walls, find weak points to push through or figure out a way to climb over. None of that happens in this story. Call the Pentagon. Nowhere do armies take the tactic described here. Grab some preachers, have them lead a processional, have the whole army walk in a circle, be very quiet, no chit-chatting. But do bring some instruments, blow horns all the time, and do that six days in a row. Then on the seventh day, do that whole thing seven times. Then everybody shout in one voice. And the walls, the walls will come tumbling down. This is quite a story. And admittedly, it's not one that we read that much. We sing the song, it's a good song. But we don't read the book of Joshua that much. One scholar has said that Joshua is the least attractive text in the whole canon. Because once the walls come a-tumbling down, you know what happens. The men and the women, the old, the young, the oxen, sheep, and donkeys, they're all cut down. Every last life is genocide. The book of Joshua tells the story of conquest in the name of God, which reads an awful lot like the doctrine of discovery in our own U.S. history. And all of it reads quite different for the native folk who were there first. Happy Fourth of July weekend, everybody. Aren't you glad you came to church? I have found reading Rachel Held Evans on these biblical war stories quite helpful, and I commend her book, Inspired, to you. She writes this, when it comes to processing these troubling stories, there are generally three types of people. Those who accept without question that God ordered the military campaigns in Canaan and has likely supported others throughout history. Or those who are so troubled by the notion of God condoning ethnic cleansing that it strains their faith or compels them to abandon it altogether. Or three, those who can name all the Kardashian sisters and are probably happier for it. I'm in the second group, Rachel says. 
The Bible's tales of violence are what added some of the first wrinkles to my pristinely starched faith. Well, I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to be able to remove any wrinkles today. Welcome to UPC, where we have a wrinkly faith. It does not make any more sense to me than it does to you that after seven days of ceremoniously hauling around the Ark of the Covenant, which contains the Ten Commandments of God, the sixth one, which is do not kill, that the people do the exact opposite. But I do think the ceremonious nature of this story is what can give us some insight into its interpretation. This chapter of Joshua seems to say way more about worship than it does about war. So here's a little geeky Bible study for you. The shofar, the ram's horn, of which our own Ramses would no doubt be proud, was used prominently in worship. It sounded the Sabbath. And even in modern-day Jewish liturgy still, the shofar calls the congregation to spiritual awakening on Rosh Hashanah and repentance on Yom Kippur. And the significance of the seven days... That's the length of many liturgical festivals, like Passover and Sukkot. And the walking around, circumambulation, yes, I just said that word in a sermon, circumambulation, is also liturgical. I remember being at an interfaith worship service myself and walking around the sanctuary following the Torah scrolls. I remember being at a Greek Orthodox wedding where the bride and groom walked around in circles too. Anyone been to such a part of a liturgical parade like that? And even the part at which we most cringe in this story is a symbol of worship. When the whole city is devoted to destruction, that is understood as being a gift to God. The whole city is the burnt offering, the sacrifice of praise. But it may not soften the terror of this text, but it helps to know that Jericho was the first city taken in the conquest of Canaan. And part of our understanding of stewardship is that we take the first fruits of our labor, our harvest, and devote them, dedicate them to God. It's like when the McLaughlin paycheck comes in through our direct deposit, the first bank hit on the automatic draft is our tithe. Now, admittedly, we schedule it that way for cash flow reasons, but it's also a good reminder that God isn't to get our leftovers. As much as I still struggle with the book of Joshua, I do find it instructive that after all that waiting on the promise spoken to Abraham all those generations ago, and all the twists and turns of the people of God since, that when they finally make it to the promised land, the first thing that happens 
looks a lot like worship. The liturgical, communal worship of God. Like what we're doing right now. And friends, what we're doing right now is becoming less and less common in this land of the free and home of the brave. A few of you have now sent me copies of a four-part opinion piece that the New York Times has done about Americans losing their religion. This great de-churching can be traced to a myriad of sources, nationalism, right-wing politics, COVID, travel soccer, really good eggs Benedict, the church's reputation of sexual abuse, hypocrisy, judgmentalism, irrelevancy, y'all. The church doesn't always get it right. And yet even when we royally wreck it, God refuses to let go of this promise and refuses to let go of the church. And so we gather here in worship. We don't have a shofar, but we've got a good organ and a piano and some favorite hymns. We don't gather for seven days, just one, although anyone who was at VBS Monday through Thursday, it sure does feel like seven days. We're here to worship, which if I take a clue from this unlikely story, it means we're here to remember that never do we ever really do things by our own might. For did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We worship so we don't get too big for our own britches. We humbly admit that we do indeed live and move and have our being in God. We worship to remember our place in the family of those who have received the promise long before us. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Esau, Moses and Miriam, and even Joshua, complicated though his chapter of the story may be. And perhaps we worship to acknowledge how complicated we also are and how often we twist the promises of faith to meet our own ends. We worship to practice giving our first fruits, not holding anything back, but devoting ourselves to generosity, lest we believe the lie that we are what we own, lest we think our gifts make no difference to God or our neighbor. We worship to see the walls come tumbling down around us, walls of prejudice and pettiness, walls of division and dehumanization, walls we put up or put up with, walls that need to come tumbling down. And we worship to stand in a circle, a big wide circle where we can weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice and share bread and wine and casseroles when needed. 
a circle of community made of people who are their full, authentic selves, messy and beautiful, every last one of us in need of the belonging and grace that is present here, and every last one of us equipped and entrusted to go out into the world to serve. We worship to struggle together with these old stories, even the least attractive among them, because God chooses to speak through them and to speak among us, and yes, speak in spite of us. And when we strain to listen, we will hear the promise of God. And church, the promise is the same as it has been. God blesses freely and abundantly so that we in turn can be a blessing to all the nations of this big, beautiful world. Now perhaps your faith is still freshly starched. Or maybe it's all wrinkled. Maybe you do know the names of all the Kardashians and none of the words of the favorite hymns or vice versa. And sure, this thing that we're doing together here, it's not common, it's not popular, but this is worship and goodness. I am glad you are here. Amen.